The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words from Gramsci, as paraphrased by Zizek, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast. And this week, um, we kind of have for a change a little bit of good news, or at least a little bit of news that I think will delight many listeners, um, uh, which is that uh, abruptly uh, in the early mornings of the week on, on Monday, uh, it was announced that uh, Tucker Carlson and Fox News were going to be parting ways and this is a totally kind of surprise uh, move um as of last friday carlson was on his show speaking um as if you know like uh, we'll be back and uh with no idea what's happening and uh uh then on monday morning fox says well that was actually his last show and they said this even while they're still running sort of promos for um uh, Carlson appearing again. So uh, it seems like something very, very abrupt happened at the uh, Fox. And um, this, uh, uh, we don't know what it is. I think that there will be news reporting in the coming days and weeks that will flesh out the story. There's, you know, reasonable speculation um, of at least two possible causes. One is this sort of Dominion lawsuit, um, which Fox recently settled and uh, which Carlson was one of several major figures in in terms of um um uh, knowingly uh lying on behalf of uh, uh Donald Trump's um uh campaign to discredit the 2020 election and that was a big egg on the face of Fox um and there's also been you know from a former producer uh, very serious allegations of sexual harassment um, and a s- toxic, sexist workplace on Carlson's uh, program, and that might have had a factor. We don't know. We will. We will be finding out. Um, but I, I thought, like you know, Carlson's uh, very welcome demise might uh, be an occasion to talk about the sort of uh, right wing media and its place, um, and also to talk about some of the surprising figures that um, didn't originally start from the political right, but have sort of migrated there. Um, in particular, the journalist uh, Matt Taibbi, who has been on um, uh, Carlson's show and also on many other right-wing programs uh, like Ben Shapiro's program, and has sort of become a kind of mouthpiece for parts of the right. Um, so to discuss these two kind of topics, I'm very well, uh, happy to have Ryan Cooper, uh, who's a managing editor at the uh, American Prospect, uh, a very fine uh, writer and thinker, and who has done some excellent videos uh, on his uh, YouTube channel that uh, sort of survey the career of characters like Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald. Uh, so uh, first of all, uh, uh, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. So let's, let's just start with the Carlton thing, because it is sort of newsy and um, might give us some context. Now, I'm already hearing some people saying, well, you know, like, this is such a big deal. Carlson is kind of figurehead. It's like the king is dead. You know, long live the king. Uh, ben, um, Bill O'Reilly used to have that spot and he was discredited and had his uh, a sexual harassment uh, thing. And he's out and then Carlson comes in and Carlson will be replaced by another Fox News knucklehead. And so, so I've seen this attitude um, on social media, kind of blasé, you know, does this really matter? And I actually kind of think it does, but I, I'm curious to know what you think about this. Well, I, I think we won't know for sure what the like long-term effects will be until we know who's going to replace him. Um, but I think what you can say is that this is a massive blow to uh, Tucker himself um, you know, that Fox has an institutional and structural reach that is like unparalleled in politics, I would say. I mean, I think it's probably the single most effective propaganda organ of any kind um, in the entire country. And he had the prime time slot on there. Um, and as you said, you know, Bill O'Reilly used to have that uh, slot before he uh, went down. And when's the last time you heard about uh, Bill O'Reilly? And the other thing you could say about Tucker is that he is much worse than Bill O'Reilly. Uh, you, you know, you you used to, you know, he, Bill O'Reilly was a real uh, a terrible person. You know, he he basically killed that one abortion doctor. I mean, he put out a, you know, a hit on him, call him the, was his name, Tiller? And it was like, yes. Tiller the baby killer. He said that like over and over again until the guy was assassinated. 
but Tucker is just like a barely even veiled white supremacist. You know, he's constantly talking about white supremacists talking uh, uh, conspiracy theories, you know, that like George Soros is replace is, is organizing a conspiracy to replace the white people in the, in the United States with immigrants. Um, you know, he even check name checks the, the, the name of it, the great replacement. He's just like, Oh, that's true. Um, and his show is, and his website have been infested with open racists. It's been repeatedly discovered at the Daily Caller and uh, one of the writers on his show. And I, I'd bet quite a lot of money that there are more that haven't been found out yet. Um, and so, you know, I, I think you could imagine him being replaced by somebody worse, but, you know, Tucker himself had such a, a personality that like he was clearly pretty good at being on TV. And also, I think that this Dominion lawsuit maybe maybe put some fear into the Fox News brass that they don't want to gamble on somebody who is so dishonest, possibly. You know, maybe they'll put Hannity in there. Hannity's a little bit more gun shy about going just hog wild with the most irresponsible, you know, crypto racist type of stuff. Who knows? Um, but I think, you know, you, you, you see him go down and uh, he, nobody's deserved it more <laughs> as far as I could tell. Yeah, no, Tucker Carlson is a terrible, terrible man uh, for the reasons you outlined and, and much more. Um, and it is uh, and for that reason alone, it's kind of worth celebrating. But I mean, I, I would add that I, I do see a kind of distinction between Carlson and the other you know, Fox News knuckleheads, like Hannity is a kind of good comparison, um, as is O'Reilly. I mean, those guys are kind of GOP partisans and they'll take, you know, their main thing is to push the GOP line. Uh, Carlson is a little bit different. He's like um, coming out of the sort of um, uh, people who are to the right of the GOP who want to have influence on them. And because Who's on Fox News? He could, and he like you know very deliberately and carefully um, and persistently uh, mainstreamed these our uh, white nationalist talking points and white supremacist talking points, and and it's very clear like from the people he surrounded himself with, as you mentioned at the Daily Caller and uh, uh, on his show, um, that you know these are people who are like reading the Reddit posts and reading you know um, the real Nazi right. Um, and trying to figure out, like, you know, what are the arguments that they could take from from those people and bring to, you know, the Fox News audience? And it has had a huge radicalizing effect. So, you know, like, it, it could be that it would be replaced by somebody worse, but it's hard to kind of imagine. Uh, and I, I think just, like, it's important to see Carlson for, you know, who he is. Um, the uh, other thing to maybe say about Carlson uh which is kind of interesting is, you know, he himself kind of had a trajectory. Um, and it's worth kind of remembering that, like, when he first started uh, into um, uh, in media career, he was, like, trying to be, like, a more mainstream Republican and trying to say, like, yes, I know a lot of the, you know, right-wing press is, like, Looney Tunes and they'll lie. And, but, you know, we, we have to create, like, the um, uh, uh, right-wing uh, counterpart to the New York Times. I mean, he gave a kind of famous speech at CPAC saying that. And he was actually like, you know, I mean, who created Tucker Carlson? Well, it was actually like CNN and uh, MSNBC. Like they were the ones who gave him prominence. And, you know, for a variety of reasons, yeah, uh, most famously, like John Stewart kind of humiliating him on CNN. Uh, he kind of like, you know, lost those perches and ended up on Fox and ended up... Uh, um, kind of like, uh, you know, finding that uh, if he couldn't win mainstream acceptance, uh, you know, there was this um, large audience on the right that was like very eager to, you know, hear him um, sell crypto fascist uh, talking points. Uh, and and that, that was his kind of trajectory. And I think it's kind of interesting um, in that sense to even though he started off further on the right to see him as as part of this um uh larger pattern that i think you've limed of people uh like matt taibbi and uh, glenn greenwald of how sort of like sort of market pressures 
uh, can push people in particular directions. So, and yeah, uh, yeah I, I think so. Matt Taibbi might be a good place to kind of uh, take this conversation to because he he did appear on uh, Carlson's show and um, uh, and it, it, you know echoing a lot of right wing um, talking points and conspiracies about the liberal media. And I think that um, I mean what your uh, YouTube. Uh, um show on him kind of uh does very well is give the trajectory and why it was a kind of surprise that this is where he ended up so do you want to give a kind of sketch of who who matt taibbi is yeah so matt taibbi was uh he's the son of the journalist mike taibbi who uh, worked for ms uh, nbc news for many years um and he got his start in journalism at the uh, at in russia um, right after the fall of the Soviet Union in the 90s. And uh, he worked with uh, Mark Ames at this p tabloid paper called uh, The Exile. And The Exile was like just gr the, the, the most grody kind of tabloid you could imagine, right? I mean, this, this uh, Ames would write stuff about like, like prostitute reviews. Um, <laughs> in one article... Matt Taibbi wrote about uh, ambushing the New York Times Moscow bureau chief and and smashing a pie filled with horse semen into his face because they didn't like his coverage. Um, so that kind of like rude gonzo journalism type of style, you know, crusading righteous critics of, you know, what, what was, to be clear, a total disaster in terms of like the the neoliberal like crash privatization of uh, the, all of these Soviet enterprises. Um, it was a, yeah. it was a disaster for the Russian economy. You know, the, the Russian male life expectancy fell by like seven years um, over a decade. And then, you know, you end up with a, this dictatorship under Putin. Um yeah, yeah, no, I, I think, I think that, that that context is really important to understand. I mean, there's both a sort of cultural context where I think um, Taibbi and uh, uh, Ames, his uh, his his colleague, were coming out of that sort of Gonzo tradition, Hunter S. Thompson, you know, National Lampoon, sort of sort of like a frat boy anti-system sensibility, um, and it kind of was appropriate in Russia because this was like you know. It was the end of the Cold War, and it's really a moment of you know Washington consensus triumphalism, where the you know the smart Harvard boys uh, and Larry Summers were going to go into like Russia and tell you know them how to you know become good capitalists. And as you say, like it, it was a disaster, and a lot of the mainstream press because they uh, were coming out of buying into the 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 narrative, buying into the sort of Western triumphalism and uh, what Washington says, they weren't seeing that disaster. If, if they saw it, they kind of justified. They said, well, you know, a little corruption is a good thing. It'll help uh, um, the economy grow. Uh, and so one way to see, you know, the exile is, is a sort of anti-systems response to a very corrupt and bad situation and a bad consensus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, the, the I think most observers at the time would agree that that they actually did some pretty good journalism, mm -hmm. uh, you know, about what was going on with the economy and stuff. Um, but the other thing to mention about the exile is that it was super sexist, misogynist. Um, Ames and Taibbi would write, you know, critiques of other journalists uh, with just like blatantly sexist, you know, commenting on their their bodies and and. Uh, that sort of thing in their book, you know, which is the supposedly satirical um, Ames writes about how, you know, they're just like constantly sexually harassing their own employees at the exile. And it's like that nobody's ever accused them of actually doing that. But, you know, it's not clearly labeled in the book that this is a joke, you know, and even if it is a joke, it's a joke in extremely poor taste. Um, and they, you know, just never really, uh, apologize for that for many years Ames still hasn't um but you know it was just sort of water under the bridge because the exile was it was like folded up by the Russian government basically and uh Ames and Taibbi had to leave and that was the end of that I believe it was in the early 2000s um but yeah at any rate that's when Matt got his his career as like a sort of similar critic not quite as rude but a critic of uh American you know politics he was a rabble rousing lefty. You know, he had a great article. He founded this publication. I think it was called the Buffalo Beast. Great article about how um, 
the mainstream media had basically suppressed uh, the size of the anti-Iraq war protests in 2003. He had a bunch of really funny and good uh, uh, reviews of Thomas Friedman books that were published in the New York Press, I believe. Um, and, you know, then he ended up at Rolling Stone, where he was, you know, the critic of the financialization of the economy, the big banks that had blown up, you know, the financial system in 2008. You know, he famously called Goldman Sachs a vampire squid. Um, and so, you know, co covering the, the the corruption and the abuses that happened, you know, the the mass foreclosure crisis, the, the way that the great article in, in Rolling Stone about the rocket docket back in Florida, where they are just rubber stamping these like blatantly forged um, uh, foreclosure uh, packets or whatever that the, this retired judge who just like paged through it in two seconds, stamp it, you know, another person kicked out of their home doing it like hundreds a day. Um, you know, that was good stuff. And uh, that's where he was up until about 2015. Um, I would say when he endorsed, you know, he was a big Bernie Sanders guy, uh, mm -hmm. one of the first to come out when when Bernie had his then to be thought a completely impossible long shot campaign to run against Hillary Clinton in 2016. And he was one of the most prominent people to come out, you know, um, in favor of of him um, back when it was thought, you know, nobody knew that Hillary Clinton was as weak as she was and that Bernie actually had a shot, um, including even Bernie himself, I think, at the time. Um, but yeah, that kind of sets us up for for 2016 and, and then his um, eventual turn to the right. Um, and so basically the the, the this all starts with the the Trump uh, Russia story. If you want, uh -huh. if if you want to get into that, I mean, yeah, yeah no, no, because no, I, I think um, uh, that's very interesting. Because I mean, I, I looking at it from the outside, I sort of uh, see his turn to the right from um, the uh, you know the Eric Garner book, and then the reaction to that. But I, I, I think the Trump Russia. You're, I mean, you're right that uh, he, the way he kind of interpreted that uh, uh, did mark a big kind of fissure, like within the left about how to see that. So, so let's get into that. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's both of those things, I think, but, but him and Greenwald and a lot of other people like him were, were basically like they, they hated Hillary Clinton. They're real critical <laughs> of the Democrats, thought it was a disaster that she had been nominated, but they also thought that she was going to win for sure. And so they were really, you know, the, the Trump Russia thing, it just triggered all of the anti-surveillance state, anti-national security state, uh, uh, you know, sort of buttons that these guys have um, thinking of the, you know, the spy apparatus with some justification, to be fair, is like basically illegitimate. Don't believe anything they say. Um, and so the idea that like American intelligence was correctly identifying what was a legitimate like threat to American democracy, namely that, you know, like the, you know, Russian spies had hacked the emails of John Podesta and the Democratic National Committee, and they were basically working with WikiLeaks to dribble them out in the most politically effective fashion to create as much negative coverage for Hillary Clinton as possible. And that was a big part of the emails story, which just became this like miasma of of coverage um, and just hugely damaged the Clinton campaign. Part of it was her own fault with her, you know, poor handling of the email server. But the Russian thing mattered as well. Um, and so, you know, they just to this day, you could never really grapple with the, that story. Yeah, I know the, 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 their, their basic take. I mean, it took time to evolve, but I mean, as I understand it, their basic take is that the Russia story is two things. One is the Clinton campaign looking for a scapegoat as to why they lost and saying yep. like Russia did it. They they, they couldn't take uh, uh, the blame. And, you know, I'm a little bit sympathetic to that in the sense that I do think that, you know, the mistakes of 2016 that the um, uh, Democrats, um, the Clinton campaign made, you know, like really were never systematically addressed in the way that they should have been but 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 they 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 take that to be like that's what russia gate was about and that's that's a bit of a leap and the other leap is to say that the other aspect was that it's the national security state the deep state that uh you know didn't like trump because he's an unorthodox figure he wanted to shake up 
foreign policy. And so they decide to straightjacket him with this Russia accusation. Um, I mean, that's basically the theory, right? Like, um, I don't know. I don't think it was like quite there at the start, but that's basically what it's evolved into. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and and so that that leads us into the the second part, which is the the uh, resurrection of all of his exile stuff. Mm-hmm. So in 2017, he comes out. Taibi does with this book called "I Can't Breathe," which is all about uh, you know the killing of Eric Garner, um, you know, on Staten Island. People remember this, I think. And Taibi did this, you know, reported book uh talking to all of his family members and a lot of people in new york politics and i think you know i think it's his best thing he's ever done it was it was Mm -hmm. a pretty nuanced and you know a rigorous look into how it happened why it happened and why there is the the effort to do something about the cops was such a flailing you know disaster afterwards um but when he was promoting that book, this was right uh, at the height of the Me Too movement. And so uh, NPR interviewer asked him about what was in that that book. Um, and, you know, he had a sort of half-hearted apology that he posted on Facebook and then a later, somewhat less half-hearted apology um, that was longer. And, uh, you know, he kind of tried to pin the blame for all the bad stuff on Ames which I think is unfair, but, um, you know, basically said we'd, we'd done terrible things. We'd been sexist and and misogynist and, and horribly inappropriate. And, you know, we'd basically turned Russia into a playground. You know, we were, we were, we would become the same thing that we were criticizing and the, you know, Americans. Um, but that didn't, it, it didn't help, you know, it, it, it uh, he, he lost his um, position at Rolling Stone and his publisher and he was sort of cast into outer darkness and go yeah, ahead. And, yeah, no, I think that's a, yeah, I think you rightly places in the sort of the me too context of, you know, like, you know, like uh, after Trump's election uh, and the sort of, you know, like awareness that, you know, America had just elected this like horrific, you know, predator, uh, knowing openly open predator to, to office, you know, like there's, there's a kind of uh, awakening and context. And I, I mean, there's two things about the, um, uh, you know, the accusations against uh, Taibi uh, and Ames, um, one of which is like, you know, they came out of Me Too, but they're a little bit distinct from Me Too because, you know, as you, as you mentioned on your um, uh, your program about Taibi, like there's never been a, you know, like a person saying, a woman coming forward and saying, Matt Taibi sexually harassed me. Like that, that has never happened. Uh, it, uh, but there is a fact that, you know, like these guys wrote about women um, in a very kind of gross way. And if they were doing satire, it's the kind of satire that has not aged well. It is, I really think it's coming out of that sort of, you know, 1970s National Lampoon kind of tradition. And there's ways in which, you know, like, you know, there's a lot of sort of 70s comedy that has not aged well. And, uh, and you know, like whether it should permanently tar somebody, like it's, it's, uh, um, it, it, it's hard to defend, even if one makes the distinction that it's not, like you know, uh, uh, the actual harassment of of uh, uh, persons um, in in physical space. It is a kind of you know, there's a kind of attitude in those exile pieces that's kind of you know, like for me, like indefensible. But like, what, what what's your take on that? Yeah, no, I I think that's right. You know, you you can say nobody's nobody's come forward with a specific accusation. You know, though somebody did. There was a female employee at the racket. Uh, which was I didn't even mention this in the the video. Mm-hmm. Um, this was the publication under uh, the Interceptor is going to be affiliated with the Intercept at First Look Media, and it was going to be run by Alex Perrine, uh, who used to be a friend of Taibi's, mm-hmm. um, and and Taibi, and apparently Matt behaved like not in a harassing way, but in an abusive way towards one of the f- female employees mm-hmm. that they had for this. Uh, publication and and it basically blew the whole thing up as far as I can tell it never went off the the never got off the ground um yeah and it, I mean that, that whole uh, thing in his apology about how you know we became what we were criticizing I think that's actually like there's some real truth to that in the sense that 
you know, like what was wrong with what the United States did in Russia in the 90s was like it came in as a kind of colonial occupying power and, you know, like was just uh, totally tried to dominate with no consideration that this is a place with its own history. And the, the exile guys, like they were kind of, you know, you can kind of see like, oh, yeah, this is hilarious society. There are all these prostitutes here. You know, women uh, uh, need to like really sex themselves up to like survive because everything's so miserable and it's great for us boys. Like, well, you know, like how are you different than Larry Summers? Except that you're uh, sort of two-bit Larry Summers, you know. He's working in billions yeah. and you, you're working for small change. But it's the, it's the exact same attitude. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, so, so th in any case, I mean, th this kind of, you know, I mean, with the Garner thing, I mean, one could say, as you say, it's a good book and it's it's a, a very pertinent and, you know, radical book uh, coming out of, you know, like the Black Lives Matter um, situation and trying to like really look at these stories um, and report them out properly. Uh, and so, you know, one could say somebody like Taibi could think, you know, like I wrote a good book and it got derailed by these, you know, the things that happened 20 years ago. But I mean, I'm assuming that's this kind of attitude that that, that had to have been there on some level with him. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and this is where, you know, he you could really tell he's just like galloping to the right, because first he started trying to reinvent himself as like a centrist uh, media critic guy, you know, so it's like, oh, we're not we're we're not doing objective journalism anymore. He wrote this book that was it was first self-published on subs on Substack. So he started his Substack actually, and it's called Hate Incorporated. And the cover has a picture of, of Rachel Maddow and Sean Hannity next to each other. You know, I mean, this is just like bargain basement, um, you know, like David Broder from the 2010s in the Washington Post. Like we need to just report the facts, no ideology. Um, and it was, yeah. you know, I mean, it's just... like as if Hunter S. Thompson had become David Broder, <laughs> like yeah. as if, like, like you know, like I, 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 you know, like I was doing gonzo journalism, but actually I was really trying to do, uh, report both sides all the time with, with uh, the point of view from nowhere. Uh, and and yeah, I mean that that sort of centrist turn is very interesting. Like he did have that like period for about two or three years. Um, uh, and you mentioned his chapel appearance, which I remember. And that was very odd, especially considering the Garner book, because he had come up with this, you know, like uh, uh, very uh, detailed portrait of, you know, police execution. And then he's suddenly saying, like, you know, uh, going on a, a radio program saying, uh, you know, like, well, you know, we have to be fair to the cops. And like, you know, what do we mean by uh, defund the police? Have they thought this through? Like talking, you know, for all the world, like um, somebody on Meet the Press. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like Jonathan Chait-esque turn talking about cancel culture and, you know, black the excesses of Black Lives Matter activists. You know, it's like, like, what, what are you talking about, man? And I, I know that was a very, a pretty unpopular episode among the, uh, the Chapo listening crew. I found some Reddit posts about it where they're just like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm just cringing through my headphones listening to this tripe. Um, but yeah, you know, and that that folded naturally into his next turn, which is to to, you know, you could be a centrist, you could be David Broder doing this, or you could be a conservative doing it in an even more dishonest way, where you say that the liberal media doesn't care about uh, facts anymore. And that's uh, where, you know, he ended up going on, uh, you know, podcasts with Glenn Lowry, um, you know, conservative academic and, and John McWhorter. Um, and then later on Ben Shapiro saying the same thing, you know, that, 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 that like the, we're, we're not reporting the facts anymore to Ben Shapiro, a facts <laughs> guy. This is definitely an honest broker if ever there was one. And at that point, you know, it's just, you just, you're just a conservative at that point, but he still had this sort of legacy fan base of, you know, rabble rousing, um, you know, critics of American capitalism, supposedly. Um, and so it, it just made for an intensely awkward sort of transition phase. And that's where he ended up, you know, being the Twitter files guy, probably the most prominent one. Because, um, you know, Barry Weiss has, has long had a reputation as just like a complete 
numbskull, you know, who makes huge errors in her reporting and is totally dishonest about, uh, you know, her her history as uh, being like an anti-Palestinian crusader. Um, and, uh, you know, ended up blowing his reputation up completely, I would say, as in, insofar as he had some legacy uh, um gravitas or something you know as as having had having done a lot of legit reporting over the years the twitter files was basically the end of it i don't know how much you want to go into that in depth well i, th I think maybe just um uh a little bit just to uh because i i, I think it is a kind of interesting um thing both that uh, elon musk you know formerly the richest man in the world and, and still very wealthy decided you know he needed to um help his branding campaign with twitter and justifies new regime by you know re selectively releasing um um information about moderation under the old regime uh with i think the idea that like you know like the old guys are bad and you see i'm gonna fix things uh and that taibi went along with it which as you said like you know you very wise you can kind of see but like taibi is someone who has done real reporting um and what would and I think it's worth spelling out like what's the problem with you know like uh uh the uh, what he did because it seemed like you know like it is very problematic to like take sort you know sources uh stuff from someone like Musk that's very selective and edited and you know put your name on it and uh, uh did you want to talk about you just like outline yeah. what what are the problems with that the Twitter files. Yeah, I mean, basically, basically, I think there's there's two problems. Um, you know, they 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 basically are trying to construct this narrative that the government was basically running to Twitter and being like, censor these conservative posts about Hunter Biden and about like you know uh, uh, other things that are inconvenient for Democrats. And basically, Twitter was working hand in glove with the uh, you know the previous with with the the government the deep state you know that the sort of part and parcel with the russia stuff that we were talking about earlier you know that that mm. trump was being stitched up by the by the um the spies or or whoever um and you know while it is true that that the government various government agencies the fbi um the the siza i forget the acronym but like they they were in communication with twitter um, there were some former FBI people who who worked at at high levels in the Twitter um, executive team, you know, making these sort of decisions. Um, but they just hugely exaggerated the scope of how receptive Twitter mm. was. So, so you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think that I think that's a, a kind of a key point throughout all the Twitter files, including the stuff Wise uh, presented. Which is there's two aspects. One is outside sources were trying to influence what Twitter was uh, doing but i mean that's hardly news right like one would expect yeah. political campaigns uh you know people would like to work the refs you know and yeah. uh uh it's not that surprising i mean and but the other aspect was uh you know like twitter you know there was an internal debate but like it seemed like for most of the occasions twitter handled this quite well like that you know like they were rightly skeptical of some of the uh, intelligence agency stuff um that they were get, getting and stuff from um uh what was that group uh, hamilton 69 or whatever which was yeah. you know like like kind of presenting a very um uh you know like very fraudulent kind of narrative and and it seemed like you know like you know within the context of like any human agency uh, institution where you're gonna have flawed people, imperfect information. Like when I was like looking at this stuff, it always seemed like, you know, like actually Twitter is doing pretty good. <laughs> like they were yeah. trying to like really figure out, you know, like uh, what's the agenda here? Uh, what's a legitimate complaint? What's not? That, that's what you do when you have content moderation. And, uh, but, but, but continue, yes. Yeah, so Taibi said, you know, before Congress that, you know that that these this group of institutions, the, the Election Integrity Project, which is a, a, a academic, you know, private thing, mm -hmm. uh, had sent like twenty two million tweets before the election to be censored. The actual that that number was a study about disinformation uh, that happened after the election. So it included that many tweets, uh, not that they were sent to Twitter to be. Um, censored or whatever because it, it included anybody talking about this stuff people debunking it too so it was trying to track how the you know how misinformation spread across twitter before the election 
they only sent about uh, 3,000 or something like that. A few thousand tweets that they flagged, they sent to Twitter saying like, these are problematic and you should look at them. Twitter left almost all of those up, like the, the majority of them, large majority, they put notes on them. And as you're saying, you know, the, a lot of those tweets were legitimately like a serious concern. Some of them were, were uh, they had a uh, fake information about uh, when voting happened. There, there was a guy who went by Ricky Vaughn uh, mm. on Twitter who, who was actually convicted of civil rights violations for attempting to trick black voters into voting in the wrong day or telling them they could vote mm. by mail in states where they can't and like trying to imitate the Hillary Clinton campaign to like to, to disenfranchise people to take their their votes away and that guy's going to prison you know they, these can be crimes if 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 you uh do it in a way that that violates civil rights so you know i yeah. don't have a and problem then actually, yeah and, and that guy ricky vaughn i i mean i know him and i think you probably would have encountered him in the kind of you know 2014 2015 twitter like he yep. was like he's like a nazi <laughs> he's like one of the yep. lead kind of racist and like you know uh led a lot of harassment campaigns um and but 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 i mean you know like that you could say that's within free speech but you know like once you're like trying to like mislead people so they can't they can't be uh, vote that's uh you're in a whole different territory um yeah so i mean there's a taibi's um Twitter uh, uh, files journalism. I, th I think for the reasons you outlined, left a lot to be desired, and like yeah. as if the, and then it was widely you know criticized, and uh, you know it's a famous appearance uh, he had um, uh, with uh, Mehdi Hassan on uh, um, MSNBC, where you know like I think uh, Taibi came out looking very bad because you know he could not answer a lot of uh, these criticisms. And so that's already a kind of, you know, you're stepping on a bunch of rakes there, but to like top everything off, like, it, you know, like he ends up having a falling off with Elon Musk. Yeah. Yeah. The, the one that to, to, to top the cap out off the discussion about the, the um, Twitter files thing. The other thing that I uh, neglected to mention is the fact that Trump was also doing the same thing. Yes. He was sending tweets to Twitter. He sent one of Chrissy Teigen uh making <laughs> just calling trump a nasty name to try to get that taken down it wasn't taken down um and you know taibi didn't give us this this context probably because musk didn't give him any data on this stuff mm -hmm. but it was like if you're actually worried about mo biased moderation decisions you would look at what the conservatives were doing too of course they were flagging tweets to twitter and, and you know they they may have had perfectly you know legitimate right to do so we you know we we haven't really seen a, a full accounting of it i mean the election integrity project thing um concluded that the vast majority of misinformation almost all of it was on the right which is not surprising um but there may be some lefties doing bad stuff too um and yeah now as you say you know one of the questions that that Mehdi hassan asked was about elon musk working with the government of narendra modi to censor a documentary in india uh that is critical of the the modi government and this is a guy who came in, you know, it's like, I'm Mr. Free Speech. I'm I'm defending free speech from, from the attack of the woke mind virus or whatever. And here, you know, he's just a huge liar. You know, of course <laughs> he is. This is how he runs all of his companies. Ten years ago, he said in 10 years, I'm going to have a man on Mars, you know. No. the uh, And so when... Um, Substack uh, uh, was working on its notes thing, which is basically a, a Twitter clone. Uh, Musk, you know, flew off the handle and he banned um, all for at least temporarily, he banned uh, people interacting with uh, tweets that had links to Substack stuff. And he's any, he, um, you know, deplatformed a Substack account, uh, you know, an attempt to like basically prevent them from trying to horn in on his business. Well, where does Taibi make most of his money? It's on Substack. And so Taibi said, well, I'm going to quit Twitter now and I'm just going over to Substack. And so in retaliation, Musk uh, uh, temporarily, again, I believe, blocked him from being searched on <laughs> uh, Twitter and including all of his Twitter file stuff. You couldn't find it for a while. And it was just, you know, ju it was just his loyal toady just threw him right over the side because he was caught in the crossfire of a different company trying to profit off Musk ruining Twitter. And it just goes to show you, you know, the, the debasement, uh, debasement of people like this.
Yeah, no, it is an utter debasement. And it's all the more shocking because, you know, this is a guy who famously, like, you know, really made his mark uh, as a critic of Goldman Sachs and of, you know, the sort of servile press that, uh, uh, you know, doesn't criticize corporations. And he has totally, you know, remade himself into the sort of um, attack dog for Musk, but not even like an attack dog, an attack dog who can then be uh, discarded when he's no longer of use to Musk. Uh, it's a, it is a humiliation. Um, I I want to just step back a little bit. Like, like you know, we, we've gone over uh, the trajectory of his career um, and, and maybe just hit on a few larger points about like where this, um, um trajectory comes from this sort of you know what i think of as sort of post-left movement that one sees in people like glenn greenwald um i think um maybe fang of the intercept as well and there's a few yep. other people that kind of uh fall into this um there seems to be like a bunch of different sources one of which is um i think we see very clearly in what you've outlined in taibi's career um these are people who had a kind of like an economic uh, critique and a very good economic critique and but we're really sort of class first or but but you know like didn't have, uh see other problems of social hierarchy in particular in Taibi's case of gender right and so so like once um uh the left you know starts to you know like there's a, a new uh surge in feminism uh that seems to like unsettle people um and one sees that in like other things uh like the sort of um um on the trans issue as well like there are people you know who come from a um a liberal or left liberal or even left background who like you know um um are get unsettled by um uh, social movements from subaltern groups that they really haven't thought about or were, of which of whom they have sort of very conventional ideas like so so did you think that's like, that seems to be like one of the major sparks um yeah i i think you definitely see that uh, there's a sort of latent conservatism you know, in this uh, like basically Gen X type of type of pundits, yeah, um, uh, real you know, bro, they're real bros. They have a real bro culture, and uh, yeah. yeah, a real bro culture that against this sort of like puritanical ish turn that's that's kind of happened with the, you know, for understandable reasons with Me Too, and um, you know, I mean, people coming out of a su super like what used to be a much more sexist and homophobic culture for sure. Um, and I think you see, you know, my, my friend, John Gans had a, 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 a post about, uh, the Sorellian left. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's a reference to George Sorel, who is this French guy. And, and he was a sort of, uh, left, uh, like a syndicalist. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. He's a sort of like left, but not of the sort of communist left, but, uh, sort of more, uh, you know, very French and like, you know, like, let's just blow things up. Let's just, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, let's just riot and, uh, let's, uh, uh, over, uh, anti-systems thinker is, is maybe one way to think of it. Yeah. And he hated liberal democracy most of all. And I think that you see a sort of similar type of tendency in thinking that liberal Democrats are, are the worst forces in American, you know, politics, they, they, they take the, you know, Obama years, um, the drone war, the fact that Obama embraced the Bush security state, and just like basically say that this is a thing that must be opposed. Um, Gans has a nice little quote about this, uh, quote, only the radical right appears to the Sorellian leftist to be authentically anti-bourgeois, truly unassimilable into the corrupt framework of mainstream liberalism. This is why there is a lot of curiosity in these Sorellian corners about the notions and culture of the radical right, about nationalism, about populism, about conspiratorialism as holding a rational kernel on the subject of corrupt elite domination, about avant-garde ironic shock tactics to shock the bourgeoisie and so forth. Yeah, no, that's yeah, that's right. There is a kind of it's coming out of a place of anti-liberalism, both in the sort of like broad philosophical opposition to liberal philosophy, uh, and but also specifically liberal liberalism as it exists in the United States, liberal the yeah. liberalism of uh, Clinton, the Clintons, Obama, and Biden, uh, and seeing that as the main enemy, and therefore you know you're willing to ally. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So the, yeah. if uh, Tucker Carlson hates uh, Obama and Hillary Clinton, well, you know he can't be so bad. Um, yeah, no, there's I, one more thing I, I think I'd 
I'd point to that that has to do with the legacy of the uh, the the post New Deal order uh, that starts coming around in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, you know, like New Deal liberalism was totally confident about using the state to achieve uh, you know social goals, building big dams, setting up welfare programs, and that sort of thing. And one uh, one thing that happened in the 1970s with people like Ralph Nader, uh, the the movement against the Vietnam War was a was a deep skepticism, a sort of like you might even say crypto libertarian uh, view of the state as like the most important thing to do for the left is to restrain the government. You got to mm -hmm. prevent them from building you know terrible dams. You got to prevent them from waging the war in Vietnam completely you know rational thing to believe in that context and i think that the a lot of people who grew up you know who basically came of political age in the 1980s um and 1990s have a sort of like reflexive suspicion hostility to the government and so when you have biden you know basically inaugurating a a, a not a new deal order, but a much more confident liberalism, you know, that just passed the biggest climate bill in history. And you're thinking about using the state to achieve uh, ends and even including, you know, defending Ukraine from Russian invasion using the national security apparatus and all that stuff, I think, just triggers all this latent skepticism, especially in the case of Greenwald, who is much more just obviously libertarian in his basic mm. politics. Um that you know people just aren't are, i think are uncomfortable with with that with the idea of the government the government being a tool that you can use confidently and without uh you know too much worry about which way it's going um and and in fact you know some of the biggest barrier biggest things to that need to be achieved is to make the uh the government work more quickly you know to remove mm -hmm. some of that stuff that that people like nader put in uh, to make so that we can build, you know, power lines and whatnot. And, you know, it, it's not, you, you can't really point to like specific aspects of this, but I think it's sort of under the surface a little bit, you know, the, this, this notion that, you know, the proper leftist attitude towards government is basically suspicion and hostility. Yeah, no, no, that's right. And I, it is a generational thing of like, you know, going back to, uh, the, as you said, the sort of 60s and 70s, the disenchantment with what, you know, um, the Johnson and Nixon administrations had kind of done. Uh, but also um, maybe like uh, uh, coming out of like a inherent contrarian kind of streak or an inherent, yeah. yeah. But, but I mean, a weirdly, like uh, very credulous, <laughs> you know, about the claims of uh, like a Tucker Carlson, right? Like, or uh, of a Ben Shapiro. Like, it's a like uh, uh, it's hard to like take the full honesty uh, 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 on a level, be um, not because they're hostile to like Joe Biden. I mean, I think there's lots of reasons to be hostile to Joe Biden, but like that they're very credulous about the the, the critic, and that brings up maybe the final aspect, which you did talk about it in your YouTube video and which we have to kind of mention, which is a sort of, you know, financial incentive. I mean, like, I think that explains yeah. the aspect of, you know, th these are like Noam Chomsky, right? Like Noam Chomsky is not going on Tucker Carlson uh, and criticizing the Ukraine war um, and saying like, you know, Tucker makes a, a good point here. Yeah, they, they, this is something like a little bit different than than, than that. And, um, and it, I, I think one has to say like there's an element of which uh, people who's, careers are based on media and finding audiences if they find particular audiences drawing up they have to look you know yeah you, you, you go hunting where the dog uh you go hunting where the ducks are yeah yeah no that's definitely a, a good reminder to bring that up because yeah as taibi lost his publisher and his well-paying job at rolling stone i'm reliably informed yeah he he sort of backed into this uh you know population of of people you have you know massive uh, wingnut welfare, basically subsidy apparatus and all these billionaires that are willing to subsidize right wing content in all sorts of ways. Um, Greenwald got, a, for example, a six figure contract from Rumble, which is funded by Peter Thiel. Um, and, uh, you know, Taibbi, when he started putting, you know, right wing stuff on his sub stack, he got up to, you know, I think 
into the uh, tens of thousands of subscribers, you know, probably pulling in high six figures, something like that. Greenwald supposedly is making between one and two million dollars a year. And yeah, so there's there's the 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 subsidy from the billionaire class. Um, and then there's the just enormous population of suckers out there who are willing to subscribe to uh, right wing content to, to just be fleeced. Um, not only with with subscriptions, of course, but but with all kinds of brain pills, magic snake oil um, remedies to treat all the various conditions of old age. Uh, and you know when when Greenwald go went on Tucker, I guess he won't be doing that anymore. Tucker would plug his Substack, you know. So I mean, you see, it's like the direct relationship of corruption right there. To just to if you if you come on my show and you say the right things, and I'm going to get my massive audience of idiots to subscribe to your you know newsletter. But the flip side of that is that uh, is the phenomenon of audience capture, you know, because they're subscribing for ideological reasons that puts a pretty strict limitation on what you can say. And especially when you're talking about conservatives, they know what they want to hear and they're not going to brook any, you know, compromise with reality or anything else. So you've, you've got to keep, you know, feeding the hogs, so to speak. Um, and it, you know, it, I think some of these, these guys maybe in the very back of their minds are a little bit worried about the fact that, you know, they, what they can say, what they can report on is now heavily circumscribed. Yeah, no, no, it's, I, I think that's uh, exactly right. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, if, if you, uh, Taibi in some interviews, you know, basically uh, says, well, you know, like I'm still like on the left. I, you know, I believe in climate change. I'm, I think, you know, like, you know, uh, police brutality is a problem, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, these are not issues like he ever talks about anywhere. <laughs> like what he's actually feeding his audience is on the right. And so you get a kind of self-censorship of like, you know, like you can believe all the things you want to believe, but if, you know, the message that you're um, as a public figure uh, is selling all the time is the kind of, you know, Tucker Carlson message, well, then one has to reasonably conclude that, that that's actually what your real politics are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, if, if uh, you're in that position, it doesn't matter what you believe, you yeah. know, what matters is what you say and what you advocate for. And, you know, it doesn't do anybody good to have secret beliefs you may allegedly hold in your head, or at least for a while about climate change or anything else. If all you're, feeding is slop to the right-wing piggies you know <laughs> that's right that's yeah yeah you become a slop merchant uh, I, I think that, that that's probably a good place to end on we've gone a bit long but i think it's a it's a rich topic and I, I'm, I'm especially glad to have had on ryan cooper uh, uh you can find his writing on the american prospect and i'll link uh to it and on his youtube uh where he's done these like really uh i think very well done um, kind of productions that are like have a lot of plot and are very well written. Uh, and uh, I would strongly encourage everyone to uh, give them a listen because I, th I think they really explain the kind of, you know, um, uh, where some of these, I think, pretty important figures are really uh, coming from. Uh, so again, thank you for, for being on the podcast. My pleasure. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.